Hello and welcome to another City Club virtual forum. I'm Dan Malthor, Chief Executive of the City Club and a proud member. Today is April 21st, the sixth week of our virtual forums for the City Club. You have probably seen the headlines in the last few weeks or you were predicting them for the last few months. This morning's headline in the New York Times, why, this, why the virus is a civil rights issue. Throughout America, the coronavirus is having a disproportionate impact on black and brown communities, killing African-Americans at much higher rates than other demographic groups. Some states are taking action. Just yesterday, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer both separately announced the establishment of task forces to focus on racial disparities with respect to COVID-19. In Ohio, African-Americans comprise 21% of Ohio's COVID-19 cases while making up less than 15% of the state's total population. In Michigan, the disparity is worse. African-Americans make up less than 14% of the population there, but 33% of COVID cases and 40% of COVID deaths. So today we're going to unpack the structures that are contributing to these and other health disparities. And we're gonna talk about possible solutions. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. We want you to, uh, we invite you to text them to 330-541-5794. Or you can also tweet them at the City Club and our team will work them into the program. Before I introduce our speaker, uh, I'd like to say a special welcome, extend a special welcome to students from Campus International. Great to have you with us today. We look forward to your questions as well. And um, I'd also like to thank the St. Luke's Foundation and the Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland, who are sponsors of our Health Equity Series. They're joined by many generous supporters, members, sponsors, donors, and others who have stepped up to help us help fund our virtual forums. For a full list, you can find them at Visit City. You can, for a full list, you can find all of that at cityclub.org slash thank you. And if you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. Now to our speaker today, Dr. Rayshon Ray. He is a sociologist and the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He's written a gazillion op-eds and articles and books as well. His research focuses on mechanisms that manufacture and maintain racial and social inequality and inequities. And his work speaks to ways that inequality may be attenuated through racial uplift, activism, and social policy. Dr. Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Dan, thank you for having me. Um, it's truly an honor to be here with the City Club and also welcome to the students, uh, the middle school students who are joining us. I think that's really, really exciting. So I want to ask you, um, you probably saw that headline that I alluded to in the New York Times this morning, the virus is a civil rights issue. What do, how do you see it? I definitely see COVID-19 as a civil rights issue. And it's unfortunate because I think as most people know, COVID-19 has been an equal opportunity disease, meaning anyone has the potential to contract COVID-19 and actually experience deleterious health outcomes from it. Unfortunately, similar to other outcomes, we know that Black Americans, the most depressed and marginalized people in the United States and oftentimes around the world, tend to be uh, more likely to be hit with these particular uh, type of health incidents, in this case, a huge pandemic. And I think we see it um, in structural ways. And I think th this is what makes it a civil rights issue. That it's not necessarily that the virus discriminates, but unfortunately our healthcare system and our society does discriminate. In turn, this means that black Americans are gonna be more likely to be exposed to COVID-19. They're gonna be more likely to experience a higher likelihood of experiencing death from COVID-19. You laid out statistics in Michigan. It's one of the most egregious cases in Illinois, Louisiana as well. But we're seeing this across the board. In fact, when we think about statistics related to COVID-19, Black Americans are over three times more likely to die from COVID-19 compared to other racial groups. And in about 27 states, that's over half of the states in, uh, in the United States of America, we actually see that Black Americans represent double the number of deaths relative to their percentage of the state population. Dr. Ray, let's talk about this. What is going on? Why? There's been a lot of mis or different points of view on the reasons for this. Um, and you, you've alluded to some of it. I want to unpack as much of it as we can. Um, why are more Black people dying uh, than white people? Why are they dying at disproportionate rates to their their actual the, their role in the population, their demographics and space in the population? 
Yeah, so as I wrote at the Brookings Institution, which I wrote a couple of pieces. First was on why we see the racial gap, and then second, what we can do about it, which is what I know that we'll get to. But mm-hmm. why does the gap exist? Part of what I argue, what my research has shown, and what a lot of social science research, public health research has shown over time, is that structural conditions undergird uh, pre-existing health conditions and undergird deaths related to something like COVID-19, to be specific about it. Predominantly black neighborhoods relative to predominantly white neighborhoods. And I studied this extensively when I was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Research Scholar at UC Berkeley, the Affordable Care Act was being rolled out. And I specifically did research on physical activity and obesity. One of the things that I realized is that the gap in obesity and physical activity had just as much to do with place as it had to do with race. So if we look in Ohio, like we could look at Maryland, Michigan, Missouri, Louisiana, that people's zip code oftentimes tell us a lot about their social class as well as their racial background. And in normally black neighborhoods, they are less likely to have access to healthy food options, meaning they have fewer grocery stores. They also have fewer grocery stores to have fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy food options. They are less likely to have healthcare access, meaning fewer hospitals, fewer urgent care centers, fewer hospital beds, fewer pharmacies. The pharmacies that do exist, they are oftentimes understocked, meaning in a time period like this during the pandemic, when someone gets diagnosed with COVID-19 and they need medication, what that's going to mean is they go to their local pharmacy and their local pharmacy might not even have the medication they need. It might take two, three or four days for that medication to come in, days that that person doesn't have. We also have to layer that up with the fact that predominantly black neighborhoods are less likely to have recreational facilities like parks and gyms. They also Mm -hmm. have lighting. So if people want to exercise, we can think about the winter. And of course, I went to grad school in Indiana, so I know the Midwest very well. And the Midwest is kind of caught in between these time zones. So all of a sudden in the fall, for about five or six months, I mean, you really lose substantial uh, sunlight during the day. Mm -hmm. People who go to work, if you don't have proper lighting, you're probably not going to go out and exercise before work or after work because it's dark. And then, of course, we have to further layer this up structurally with the jobs that Black people actually do. Blacks are more likely to be represented among these new essential workers, people who work at grocery stores, people who work at restaurants, bus and bus and train drivers. In fact, Blacks represent about a quarter of all bus and train drivers in the United States. And then Black neighborhoods, such as in Cleveland and Cincinnati, similar to uh, Prince George's County, close to Maryland, they are more likely to be situated in denser populated areas, meaning social distancing actually becomes a privilege instead of something that people can actually actually do. All of this then adds up to greater exposure and a um, and if you're if you are if you do have those uh, those qualities, those um, those social determinants of obesity or lack of access to exercise opportunities and green space opportunities, you're more likely than to you're predisposed in some fashion to be vulnerable to COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, the vulnerability is key. I mean, we're still learning a lot about COVID-19, but one of the things we know is that it's highly contagious. And I'm actually thankful that it's not as deadly as, say, something like Ebola, which if you look at Ebola, I mean, it has a death rate of like 70 or 80 percent. And I really want people to think about this, which is why we have to prepare for the future, is imagine if COVID-19 had a 70 to 80 percent death rate. Um, And similarly, imagine if Ebola had a contagion rate or an R naught, as 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 we describe it, an R naught similar to COVID nineteen. So when it comes to that exposure, if we just say walk through the day of a Black American living in an impoverished neighborhood, they have to get up, they have to go to work. Well, first they have to try to situate their kids as it relates to homeschooling te- and technology. Oftentimes in an environment that doesn't have good Wi Fi and oftentimes doesn't have the technological uh, devices they need. So then they try to set their kid up, they go to work. Well, oftentimes they're taking public transit. I think a lot of uh, governors and mayors aim to enact a policy that they thought would help with social distancing. What they did was, like in New York City, they actually reduced the transit schedule. And um, in some places, they actually made it free as well. They thought that would help. But a reduced schedule, what it actually meant is that you have a lot of people getting onto a stop in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And now all of a sudden, social distancing simply can't happen. I mean, like I take the train to work uh, at, at Brookings in DC. And I mean, I can tell you, people are on top of each other. And it's still like that at a lot of subways. And the perception is that people are just out not paying attention to social distancing, trying not to take care of themselves. No, actually, they are going to work. 
they get to work and then all of a sudden they are exposed to hundreds of people at their workplace. We know early on that PPE wasn't provided well, it's still not, not just the healthcare workers, but also other frontline workers, police officers, firefighters, these new essential workers. And then they get back on a train and come back and bring that exposure back to their neighborhood, oftentimes in an apartment complex where just to get to their apartment, they have walked past probably dozens of people to get there. And so we have to be realistic about what we're asking people to do and realize that unfortunately, underneath COVID-19 is structural inequality that oftentimes manifests on the backs and bodies of Black people. So Dr. Ray, you, um, as we started planning this, we titled the forum, The Myth of the Great Equalizer. Why is that the myth? Because there's still this, there's still people saying like, oh, COVID-19 doesn't care if you're young or old, black or white, rich or poor. But in fact, it kind of does. You know, I love that title. I can't take credit for that. That was that was you and your team. Uh, excellent title. Um, and, and, and it's true. You know, when this virus started out, it started hitting oftentimes the most affluent and wealthiest among us, whether that be Tom Hanks and Idris Elba or Boris Johnson and Prince Charles or the president of Harvard. I mean, so people were like, wow, OK, what's going on with, with this particular uh, pandemic? But part of what I know about health outcomes and part of what I know about inequality is that eventually it's going to spread. And as it started to spread, because low income people oftentimes work for higher income people, we have to be very, very clear about that. And so we see wide disparities in workplaces that now all of a sudden they are taking that virus and bringing it back to other communities. Similarly, I think we're going to start to see rural America start to be hard, hard hit as well. And we're already seeing it in some places like South Dakota, for example, has had some of the largest spikes over the past couple of weeks. And I think in the Midwest and in the Deep South, I'm extremely worried because most rural counties actually don't have one hospital bed. And we have to be clear about why that is. A lot of that has to do with the fact that governors and county executives and mayors actually turned down money related to the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid because they actually didn't want to support universal health care coming into fruition, which is something that I think would, would, would help a lot. I want to make this quick point. There was a big, a large report that was done um, that looked at pandemic responses of countries. It was a report on 195 countries, brought, brought together some of the uh, best scientists to, th to, to think through this. The United States ranked number one on that report. But the United States only scored 84% out of 100. Now, as a university professor, 84 is just average. You know, it's, it's a B, it's fine, but it's nothing to necessarily write home about. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that was number one. Now let's talk about why they got that 84. The United States was number one when it came to finances, but had a 66% when it came to healthcare access and responses. In fact, the United States had a lower ranking when it came to responding to a pandemic than certain countries in, um, in the middle of Africa, such as Congo, which has had to respond to Ebola and Liberia. So we have to be very clear that that healthcare access oftentimes collides on the most vulnerable among us, and oftentimes those are Black Americans. Dr. Rayshon Ray mentioned that uh, you mentioned that you're a university professor. I should probably let everybody know where. That's the University of Maryland College Park, where I uh, teach as associate professor of sociology and executive director for the Lab of Applied Social Science Research. Dr. Ray, let's shift gears and push towards solutions. Um, the uh, state of Ohio has stood up a strike force. Uh, state of Michigan has stood up a task force to focus on the racial disparities. Both are focusing on racial disparities of the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, what, uh, what should those strike forces and task forces, this is happening in other states, no doubt as well, what should they be focusing on? What should they not only be looking at, what should they be doing? You know, I think the first big thing is to actually applaud the governors in, in your state in Ohio, as well as in Michigan. I mean, I think it would go to Maryland and California as well. And I think it's important to note that just with those four states, going from the West to the Midwest to the East Coast, um, and I've lived in all of these regions. My kids were born in California. I currently live in Maryland. As I said, spent a, a substantial amount of time in the Midwest, actually uh, spent two summers at University of Michigan. So I know these areas very, very well. And what I think is important is that in these states currently, we have two Republican and two Democratic governors. This, this isn't about political ideology. This is about what's doing right for people's health. And these task forces that they are putting in place specifically to deal with this racial gap is exactly what should be being done. Interestingly, in Ohio, 
the gap isn't nearly as large. In fact, Ohio is one of supposedly one of the, the best states in responding to this pandemic. But what I like about what the governor is doing, he's saying, you know what? I'm starting to see a widening gap and we need to address it now. We don't need to address it later. We need to address it now. The task force is key. And there's one key group that they mentioned that's important. And that deals with uh, religious leaders. Um, in the second piece that I wrote in Brookings, which is how we reduce the racial gap, what I laid out were a series of steps. First, we need demographic data. So the response that the governors are having um, is a response to a collection of demographic data, a collection of race, place, age, gender. I think the next step is to get pre-existing uh, health condition data. So the people who passed away, what pre-existing health conditions did they have? Did they actually call in and then were they turned away to go back home like we've seen in Michigan and Ohio? So part of it is building a data set that we can actually analyze. The second thing is we need more testing and triage places in predominantly black neighborhoods. And we need to use faith organizations, specifically black churches to do this. One of the things I've done is I've done a lot of research on health and trust and medical mistrust. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Abigail Sewell, we collaborated on a series of papers uh, a few years ago that showed first off that there was a gap in medical trust. So blacks were less likely to trust healthcare. That, should, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody after Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks and a host of other things. So now that testing is going on, and I can say something about that as well, about how we should be doing medical testing of new drugs and vaccines. But as it relates to solutions, we need testing and triage places in predominantly black neighborhoods and they need to be in black churches. Black churches can serve as health equity zones or as, as President Obama called it, uh, promise zones where they, they're continuing to do things like hand out food, give students uh, laptops. And now all they need is testing and triage to further layer this up. People will come for testing. They can then also get help. They are bringing in the homeless. So I think that's another thing that can be done. Two other things in the short term. That deals with employment and these new low wage workers. In Tennessee, for example, I was born in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, a little bit south of Nashville. I went to college at the University of Memphis. Minimum wage is $7.25. Nashville has boomed since I left there over 20 years ago. One of the things that's interesting is that the average rent in Nashville, which still blows my mind, is like $1,400. If you make, make $7.25 an hour, you actually make less than $1,200 a month before taxes if you work 40 hours a week. We need uh, to raise the minimum wage. We need to pay people hazard pay. We need to be realistic that people are putting their lives on the line, according to the Department of Labor and the Department of Commerce. Hazard pay is when you have an exposure to something that could kill you. COVID-19 is that. And then we also need to give people paid sick leave. Paid sick leave is critical. So what, what mayors and governors need to do is to enact paid, paid sick leave so that employers can keep sick employees at home. What's happening now is that these low-wage workers cannot afford to take a day off from work. So they're going to work sick and then they are bringing COVID-19 back to their communities. If you let people have two weeks off, which is essentially the period by which uh, COVID-19 oftentimes is running its course, people can get the healthcare they need, they can stay at home and not expose other people and help us to actually get this pandemic behind them. Okay, let me see if I can summarize the, the solutions that you've just laid out. We need better demographic data uh, across the board. We need to be doing more testing in predominantly black neighborhoods. And to do that, we should be using churches um, and houses of worship. And we need employment equity writ large, right? And that means paid sick leave, better pay, hazard pay. Did I summarize that? Is that? Those those are the, yes, those are the exact solutions that I laid I want, out. Um, I want to come back to, the, to uh, where testing happens and why churches. Why churches? Why not schools? Why not libraries? Why not city halls? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So no matter which neighborhood people go into in America, and I've studied um, neighborhoods across the country um, when I was doing work, looking at the impact that racial composition had, no matter what, you go into a black neighborhood, you're going to pretty much find a black church. And even if people don't go to church, um, they view that church as a place where they know they can seek refuge. The research also shows that uh, blacks who attend church are actually more likely to trust and utilize healthcare. It's extremely important because part of what we're talking about is as all this information has came out and is hitting the black community, they're like, well, I called the 1-800 number and I was sent home. I, uh, they sent me home without medication. Someone I know went to the hospital, they were never seen and they died. So medical mistrust is rising 
uh, beyond what it already is. The research I've done shows that people who are more likely to utilize healthcare when they frequent black churches. Black churches are these hubs in black communities that do a lot of things. And I really urge our policymakers to utilize them in this time because it's not like people are at the churches. Whether or not we, we do something with schools, well, this is the thing about schools. First, kids um, are in those spaces oftentimes. Um, and it's unclear whether or not we should be using schools as these places. The other thing, schools oftentimes have drastically different setups and drastically different forms of inequality. I mean, we can look at this across the board that a school in an affluent area looks very different from a school in a low income area. So utilizing black churches where they are already set up and more importantly, already connected to the black community means that we're going to be able to speed up testing and treatment. Are there other places um, besides churches that you would recommend? Would you recommend libraries? Would you recommend barbershops and beauty shops? I think barbershops and beauty shops would be key. You know, and what's happening to barbershops and beauty shops around the country is detrimental and saddening. And you bring up barbershops and beauty shops. I've actually found that people are more likely to say that they would engage in physical activity if uh, their barbershop or their beauty salon Held, held these types of classes. And, and it's, people have to understand what this means. Black churches and black barbershops and beauty salons were some of the first Black-owned businesses that Black people had. They are staples of the Black community. There's a saying that the barbershop to a Black man is like the country club to a white man, because these are spaces where Black people have been omitted from. But in barbershops, everything happens there. And in fact, there's been research being done by, say, Dr. Keon Gilbert at St. Louis University, Dr. Stephen Thomas at University of Maryland and other places who have barbershop studies where they've paired up with 100 black men, like in St. Louis. And this is so critical in a city like St. Louis, where we know that nearly all of the people who have died from COVID-19 have been black. They set up healthcare triage places in barbershops where they went around, checked people's blood pressure, talked to them about their health and actually helped to increase healthcare utilization. I also think that'll help black barbers and black um, hair salons get back to work. A lot of them have been excluded from these small business grants that have gone out. And that is a huge disparity that I'm seeing. That when we look at the states, if we look at which uh, percentage of small businesses by state have been awarded this small business money from the CARES Act, states that have a larger percentage of Blacks have been left out of this. They have been less likely to receive small business uh, grants. And I've talked to a lot of small business owners who are black who talk about submitting their material, talking to their banks, and then all of a sudden being denied, oftentimes for small amounts of money, $25,000 that will help them get through this. And those are things that these next policies should be able to make up. The second, the next round of CARES Act or, you know, whatever, if it's COVID-4 or Corona-4, whatever we're referring to it, but apparently this, the, those very issues that minority lending institutions and minority businesses should have greater access. Um, I want to mention we're going to move to questions from the audience in about five or 10 minutes. The phone number again, 330-541-5794. 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club. We'll work it in. Um, let's talk about criminal justice institutions for a second, Dr. Ray. Um, it seems to me in a place like Ohio, where um, you have a uh, little over 500 deaths, and um, the but the population, the incarcerated population, is disproportionately African American, and we know that the Marion Correctional Facility has been a hotspot for COVID infections. Um, it seems to me when you're talking about numbers at this level, that that is likely a major contributing factor to the disproportionate impact of COVID on African-Americans in Ohio, um, and which brings to mind all the other issues around criminal justice reform that, uh, that come up frequently. Without a doubt. I mean, prisons similar to nursing homes have been hard hit. We have to think about these setups. They are in dense areas where oftentimes people are on top of one another. You're oftentimes sharing a room with someone else. And when it comes to prisons, I just did this analysis for federal prisons, that the federal prison rate of contracting COVID is hovering about a half percent for, for the entire federal prison population. Now, people hear half a percent, they say, oh, that's not that big. Well, let me put this in perspective. If the United States, and, and this could be the case because we know the testing hasn't been up to par, but the, the number of COVID cases in the United States as a whole, 
will have to increase 33% to match what's happening in federal prisons. We haven't even got to what's happening in private prisons because we don't have a lot of access to those data. So this is a huge problem. And why is this a huge problem? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, a lot of people, particularly black men who are in prison, are overwhelmingly in prison for nonviolent uh, crimes and at times nonviolent drug crimes that we know, unfortunately, is laced in racism when we walk through the criminal justice system that whites are less likely to be arrested for the same types of crimes. They're, less, they're more likely to be given a plea deal. They are less likely to be given the same uh, sentence, the number of months in prison, say 60 months in prison compared to a black person who committed the same amount of crime. So we know that these disparities exist. What do we do about it? What we need is for governors, similar to what um, uh, Governor Hogan in Maryland has done. He's on pace to release hundreds of incarcerated people over the coming months whose sentences are about to run out um, over the next few months or who are over 60 years of age. And these people oftentimes have nonviolent crimes. These are things that governors across the board should be replicating. And again, it's, it's a key point to note. Governor Hogan is a Republican governor. This isn't about whether or not you're a Republican or Democrat. This is about doing what's right for people. And so prisons is something. And the Justice Policy Institute has done a lot of this work. Flick Shop has done a lot of this work. I also want to make one other key point. The CARES Act also excludes people who have a felony record. What that means is that a lot of people who have got out of prison, who've turned their lives around, who've started businesses, are now trying to also employ other people who are incarcerated, like Flick Shop, and they can't access CARES money because of clauses that were put in. These sort of things are going to further exacerbate the racial gap, not only in COVID, but also in employment, in wealth, and other outcomes that we know will continue to make our country um, unequal. Wait, can you can you unpack that a second? That's a that's a bit of information that I was not familiar with. The, the CARES Act excludes employers who employ previously incarcerated individuals. So the CARES Act excludes people who uh, had a previous felony record. So, so, people, if you're, so as a as a small business owner, if I'm a small business owner with a felony on my record, I cannot access CARES money. Exactly. Especially if you are still like if you are on um, on parole or probation. And that, and what's important about that is people who have been formally incarcerated are more likely to employ people who have also been formally incarcerated. So that's another layer. Not only is it happening in prisons, but then you also have people who are trying to get access to these funds who can't because of the stipulations of their record. Now, there is a time limit on this. So for example, I can't remember if it's like seven or 10 years that you've been out, if your record is clean, those people are able to access the CARES Act. But see, this is the thing. We know that recidivism increases within the first two to three years that people are out of prison. In fact, uh, the recidivism rate, if people haven't had any vocational training, if they haven't been able to find stable employment, the recidivism rate is like 70%. This is the group we're talking about that is most vulnerable right now. And the CARES Act, and so this next proposal needs to take that into account, not only needs to take into account the disparities across states and the fact that states that have higher black populations have been less likely to get small business funding, but also the clause that is excluding formerly incarcer incarcerated people from turning their lives around. I want to um, come back to uh, the issues around um, economic equity and uh, employment equity writ large. Um, you talked about the need for hazard pay. You talked about the need for a living wage. And um, and you also talked about the need for paid sick leave. I'm curious to know how you feel about universal basic income. There have been some calls that uh, the twelve hundred dollar um, relief that many are seeing through the through the Treasury Department and the IRS um, is helpful, but insufficient. Some are calling for two thousand dollars a month for the duration of the crisis. Um, and of course, this was a, a big talking point during the campaign and in particular with Andrew Yang's campaign calling for a universal basic income. How do you see it? I think a universal basic income is needed for a couple of for a couple of reasons. First. Wages, the minimum wage in particular, has not kept pace with inflation since the 60s and the 70s. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, we're talking about 50 years that wages have not kept pace with uh, inflation. I mean, that that's almost criminal. So you have people essentially working for pennies on the dollar. And then, of course, you couple that at this time period. I think the second major point is that paying people a living wage actually leads to less dependency on federal safety nets and state safety nets. This is important 
because we know that the United States, for example, spends more money on healthcare than any other country in the world, actually 25% more than second, and that's Switzerland. And that's per capita, by the way. Mm-hmm. A lot of that money is wrapped up in Medicare and Medicaid because you have low wage workers who are working 40 hours, 50, 60 hours a week. They can't get um, full benefits like those of us who have full time jobs with benefits. And they also get paid so little that they still need to get food stamps. So there was a report by one of my colleagues at Brookings, Molly Kinder. She's been doing amazing work interviewing low wage workers around the country on this. I mean, she's just been doing phenomenal work on this. And there was one quote from a low wage worker that said, you know, I take pride in coming to Ringo people's groceries, but I feel sad when I see my coworkers checking out people's groceries and then having to use food stamps to purchase their own. I think that captures the essence of inequality in the United States and why we need a guaranteed income. There are a lot of scholars who are on board with this from, you know, uh, Thomas Shapiro and Melvin Oliver and uh, Sandy Darity and others who are saying that this guaranteed income would do actually a lot to reduce the expenses that the United States has. Um, We're going to move to questions uh, from our audience right now. You can text your questions to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794. It's right there on your screen. You can also tweet them at the City Club. Um, This one comes from a student at Campus International. What are the ways that medical experts and government officials are helping lower class communities with limited resources to be better equipped during this pandemic? What are you seeing? You know, I think I think up to this point, it hasn't been a lot done. You know, mm. I think what the governor of Ohio and the governor of Michigan are proposing are key. Um, I also think what Governor Hogan has done in Maryland, he put he actually put a testing site in uh, Prince George's County, which is not only the most affluent, uh, predominantly black county in the United States, but it also has a lot of income inequality. He put a large testing site at FedEx Field, which is where the, the Washington NFL team plays. And. I don't think that we've been doing a lot. And it's it's one key point that we need to bear in mind. Up to this point, because we've been treating COVID-19 as an equal opportunity virus, this means that our policies to deal with it have been colorblind. And we've had colorblind policies in a society with a healthcare system that is not colorblind at all. And so in order to actually address what's happening, we need to take a health equity approach that centers race, that centers social class, that centers vulnerability. And when we do that, centering that vulnerability and that oppression starts to help everyone involved because now those grocery store workers who are going, say, from Harlem or the Bronx to Manhattan to bag people's groceries so they can go home and make brownies with their kids, now you're not exposing that person either. So see, we have to think about what this virus is actually doing. So I don't really think that it's been a lot done. I think, again, the policies were supposedly supposed to do something well, but they took a colorblind blind approach. And right now, similar to what happened after the, after the Civil War, similar to what happened after the Great Depression and World War II, the United States is once again missing an opportunity to correct our racial wrongs and the structural inequalities that exist in our, in our society. So <clears throat> just to unpack what you just said, though, that in the, in the New Deal, in Reconstruction, there were the, these sort of promises that it was going to level the playing field. And in fact, it just increased the policies that were implemented, simply increased inequities, um, whether that was blacks being excluded from some of the benefits of the New Deal or not receiving 40 acres and a mule as they'd been promised. Um, I want to sort of think forward, though, with what you said about what a, a policy might then look like if testing let's assume that eventually there are enough tests available as we keep hearing will eventually happen. What I think you're suggesting is that priority should be given to black and brown communities. And in particular, people who have been classified as essential workers during this time, who have been putting their bodies on the line. So the rest of us can get groceries. They should be first in line for testing. Yeah, I think so. Because they're the ones who are out working. So it's interesting. If we actually look at who was able to get the first testing and even some of these new antibodies that have come out. There is a place in Florida where essentially the wealthiest people live. All of them are getting antibody tests. Like why are they getting antibody tests and people who are putting their lives on the line every day aren't getting them? Not just uh, these new essential workers, but also police officers, firefighters, healthcare mm-hmm. providers. I know a lot of healthcare providers who are trying to get tests for COVID and tests for uh, antibodies and they have not been able to do so. That is how 
inequality manifests in our society. As it relates to what we can do about it and, and as it relates to putting these testing first, part of the reason what people have to realize why that needs to happen is because it needs to be a correction for what's happened over the past two months. I'll make one quick point and then address the other part of your question. In New York City, um, the places that are hardest hit in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, and Harlem haven't up to this point had sufficient testing, haven't had sufficient triage. They've had to lit literally oftentimes take public transit and go an hour to get somewhere to actually access this. So this is a correction, similar to the things we're talking about with you know, 40 Acres in a Mule and the New Deal, it's a correction. There's a book that people should read that really highlights what happened with the Great, with the great Depression. It's called When Affirmative Action Was White by uh, historian Ira Katz Nelson. Phenomenal book, transformed how I thought about this issue. And mm -hmm. Dr. Andre Perry and I at Brookings just wrote a piece on reparations. And we think that reparations will actually help to address a lot of the concerns that are in place. It allows for an opportunity right now to correct some of these wrongs, to do something about education, do something about small businesses, do something about housing. And we have very specific policies in place that we think can correct the United States moving forward so that everyone gets an equal shape. Could we dig into reparations for a second? Because I, you know, as you and I spoke about yesterday, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, when he wrote that article for The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations, came and spoke about it at the City Club. Um, there's always that question about how you, how you, how government would then figure out who is deserving of reparations and who isn't because there is this giant mistake that happened uh, in, you know, the 1860s when, when the government didn't pay reparations to slaves at that time. So now there's a, a kind of a demographic mystery uh, or, you know, in figuring out who would be deserving of those reparations. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Sandy Darity at Duke, has one of, uh, I think it's going to be the seminal book on reparations uh, that, that's about to hit now. And so we wrote this report. Uh, we actually have an event coming up um, next week, I think, on reparations at Brookings. And so part of thinking through this are a couple of things. Um, first is, uh, where does the money come from? Well, I would like to think that after what we just went through over the past month and the fact that the federal government is pulling out trillions and trillions of dollars out of his back pockets, like they're just printing money at some printing press somewhere, that we shouldn't necessarily have that issue anymore. But on that point, there are a lot of things happening. In the state of Maryland, for example, I testified um, recently on a bill, it was called the Harriet Tubman Community Investment Act. And what this bill was set up to do was to give reparations to descendants of, uh, of Black enslaved people in the state of Maryland. This is really, really important for people to recognize is like why the 40 acres in a mule didn't happen. What happened was that that was rolled back after Lincoln was assassinated. Not only was it rolled back in places like uh, Washington DC, for example, slave owners actually received reparations for lost property, that lost property being black Americans. And then of course they were able to make money on the land multiple times over, like in Prince George's County, the, the wealthiest black area in the country. That land that a lot of these homes are on that black people own also still have the slave owner's original house set up on that land looking down upon them. This is the ways that inequality manifests today. So I think we could deal with how we, how we pay for it, but to be specific about it, currently we have policy set up for education for within a state for students to get uh, tuition, if they have a certain GPA. Uh, there are a lot of states around the country that do that. Um, I think that uh, descendants of black American slaves should be able to benefit from that. They get into a college, private or public, that that is paid for. So we have federal and we have state. And then we could also go to housing, that there needs to be um, down payment grants. There also means, needs to be down payment or there needs to be revitalization grants. It's very much in line with what happened at the end of the Great Depression. And it's important to note that what Ira Katz Nelson highlights is that uh, even though these policies were, were mandated federally, they were implemented locally. This is why governors and mayors are so critical to take a health equity approach to COVID-19 and deal with this. So last point on this, as it relates to reparations, is the question was, is how do we identify people? Well, we've outlined a series of steps. First, you can go off of how people have been identifying on the census, how people were identified on their birth certificate. Part of what this does then is starts to separate people. I'll give a couple of examples. So Senator Cory Booker, for example, whose parents are descendants of slaves, would count. Uh, Michelle Obama, who's former first lady, would count. Therefore, her children would count. But her husband, Barack Obama, based on what we know 
from his parents would not count because his mother is white and his father um, came from Africa later after slavery. So we can have those, those differences there to actually figure out what's going on, but it's gonna stay, take the federal government and states coming together to deal with this. Okay, a couple of questions here regarding the, uh, the achievement gap. Um, what impact do you think COVID-19 will have on the already large achievement gap of black and brown children in America? And then one from, uh, 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 I think a former student of yours, my name is Dominique, after I graduated UMD, became an educator in Oakland, California. Since COVID-19 has led to many school closures, what are your thoughts on how students have been impacted? It upsets me that my old elementary school has to rely on GoFundMe to feed and support its students rather than receive effective support from districts. Yeah, hey, Dominique. Um, so I think that one of the big things that's gonna come out of this, and Dr. Nicole um, Turner-Lee at Brookings with me has done some of the best work on the digital divide. And part of, of course, what that work highlights is the divide among technology. I think it's the assumption, like even us setting up here, doing this today, it's great, right? You can sit where you are, I can sit where I am, we can do this, but there are a lot of people who don't have access to this. A lot of places in rural areas, a lot of places in urban areas that simply don't have it. What Nicole said, and Austin, Texas has actually implemented this policy I'm about to say. You mentioned schools earlier. What role can schools play in what's going on? So maybe it's not the physical building of schools, but it is the school buses. Imagine if Verizon, AT&T, these other, uh, other Wi-Fi internet companies outfitted these school buses with Wi-Fi and placed the school buses in the middle of the route that these school buses go on. You can already deploy it, it's easy. School buses go to different places for a reason, pick up different kids, put the school buses there. Instantly, you have hotspot Wi-Fi for the kids to access. As it currently stands, we see that the gap is going to widen as it relates to the have and have nots, not just in terms of wealth and income, but also in terms of academic achievement. That there are reports in North Carolina, even in Washington, D.C., where there are kids who simply have not showed up for virtual classes. And we have to put this in perspective. My kids go to a phenomenal school. They have four, three to four Zoom classes a day. I mean, it's like overwhelming for me, even as a professor. I can't even get to how the other parents feel. But you know what? There are a lot of kids that aren't getting one of those. So the digital divide is going to continue to increase. And we have to be very clear about why inequality in, in, in academics and education exists. It's because around about 20, 25 years ago, um, what happened is that local schools started to be funded by local property taxes. I just went through earlier the structural conditions that manifest as it relates to health. Well, those same structural conditions impact education. So if you live in a lower income area, your school is going to get less money than a place it is in a higher income area. Universities have something big to say about this. Some of the most inequalities exist between zip codes where universities sit and zip codes right outside of that. So we have a lot of work to do where we see this gap. And uh, Jonathan Kozel, a journalist who did some phenomenal work, wrote a couple of signature books, The Shame of a Nation and Savage Inequalities that really highlighted the ways that property taxes drives the academic achievement gap. Um, so another question here about masks. Um, there's a big conversation that's been happening about African-American men and masks in public and uh, the, need to, the need for people to wear masks, but the trigger that that presents for white America sometimes um, and law enforcement. What do we do about that? Yeah, so the mask issue is a big issue. Um, I've talked to a lot of Black Americans, men in particular, who are really worried about wearing masks in public. And in the Washington Post, I actually did a video op-ed responding to the short video that Surgeon General Jerome Adams put together about how to put to get put on a mask. The, the first thing I thought was how sad it is in supposedly the wealthiest country in the world that we're having to show people how to make masks out of old T-shirts, that we don't have enough PPE for healthcare providers like my wife who are putting their lives on the line every single day. We're asking them to wear trash bags. I mean, that is really what we talk about, not only the have and the have nots, but just how unequal it is. The work that I've done on physical activity is relevant because one of the things I found was that black men were less likely to engage in physical activity in predominantly white neighborhoods relative to predominantly black neighborhoods. And these were affluent men, college degrees, professional occupation, making good money. Initially, it, it baffled me until I actually did some interviews and then honestly reflected on my own personal experience, which I, I rarely do. But part of what I found 
was that black men engage in uh, what we call a signaling process. It comes from Irving Goffman. The signaling process means that when blacks go out to engage in physical activity, they do things like um, exercise in well-lit areas, wave at their neighbors, smile, you know, uh, make sure that people know who they are. They wear an alum alumni t-shirt so that people know that they went to college. Honestly, things that people don't do when you run, like running is, is difficult enough, you know, that, that you have to do all the signaling. They put, put their ID in their pocket. They have to tell their partners where they're going and where, how long they're going to be gone. Things that make engaging in physical activity more difficult. Now you want black men to wear a mask. Well, unfortunately, the research I've done shows that our blackness becomes criminalized. And so what that means is you layer that up with a mask. We've already seen reports around the country where black men have worn masks and been perceived as criminals during a time when they actually should be applauded for making sure that they are protecting themselves and protecting other people. So that's a huge, huge problem that relates to the criminal justice system that we need to deal with. Additionally, masks are not readily available to most Americans today. And um, and so, as you said, we're making masks out of old T-shirts or, you know, buying them from entrepreneurs online who are who are making reusable masks. Um, but, you know, you and I can afford to buy a mask online to so that we can go to the grocery store and, and be appropriately covered. Not everybody can. What is there any or is there anything being done right now anywhere to make masks available to uh, to communities in, in poverty? Well, supposedly the federal government. Um, has put in place a series of things. The problem, though, is that when you talk to governors and mayors, it's clearly a disconnect. Like, for example, in Maryland, uh, the First Lady of Maryland happens to be Korean, and she helped broker a deal to get more PPE and more supplies from, uh, from South Korea, specifically the state of Maryland. Uh, Massachusetts has done something similar. New York has done something similar. So it speaks to this gap. And so not only are we just talking about a shortage overall, then we have to get to what's happening in impoverished communities. And the problem with getting to impoverished communities oftentimes means that the people at, at the bottom of the inequity chain are going to continue to be left out. And I think the PPE is an example where we see that. And, you know, and I think that's one of the things coming out of the administration is that when people see videos like that from the Surgeon General, it becomes to a lot of people insensitive to the experiences of a lot of people. I tell people this all the time that one thing that I do like about seeing uh, people talk is that we see heterogeneity among black Americans. And I think that's first important. Like we're not all the same. We don't all think the same or nor should we. And people need to realize that. But what we do expect is that our policymakers and the lead, and the lead healthcare provider uh, in the nation provides contextual information that actually takes into account the experiences of people who don't have the same rights and privileges as other people. And this is part of what makes simply wearing a mask a civil rights issue. That I talk to a lot of black men who are like, oh, I actually got to go to the store today. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm really worried. I'm trying to find the most, the most flamboyant mask I can wear. It's going to be pink. It's going to be orange. It's going to have all kinds of stuff on it. People are going to know I'm not trying to rob the place. Like that shouldn't even be the process that people have to go through. And it's not just in people's heads. There are reports around the country of people getting stopped in stores, being sent out, even police officers telling black men to remove their mask. And you like, I mean, that is just unfathomable in our society right now that that's happening. But you know what? That's the reality of people in black America. That's the reason why black churches have to be a part of this. That's the reason why people have to be sitting at the table. Cause there's one thing I know about doing policy. If you're not sitting at the table, you're on the menu and somebody's eating you for lunch. And for too long, the most vulnerable and the most oppressed people have been on the menu of people and then had to go and serve people while bringing back viruses and health conditions back to their own communities. So Dr. Ray, you're at Brookings and, um, and which is a you know nationally known, well-respected think tank. Do you have access to the the brains of policymakers? Are you being called on to? Are you in the, the conversations that are shaping the next version of the CARES Act or the the policies of the future? Yes, I think so. So I regularly testify on Capitol Hill. Uh, my colleagues do as well. Uh, we've been consulting with policymakers. I've talked to people at state and local levels as well as at the federal level. Uh, we've sent uh, documents and reports. Uh, we've sent letters to uh, be on the radar. Uh, I was actually part of um, some documents that were sent to the White House from Rainbow Push Coalition and, and Reverend Jesse Jackson highlighting what's happening in prisons. So we are playing a role 
in what's going on. And I think one of the biggest things that people have to realize about a place like Brookings is that we do uh, research, objective research, and then we write about that research. So what's coming out of a place like Brookings is something that people can rely on, that these are um, best use cases. And then these are the best recommendations for what we do about it. And so I've been in consultation, of course, with the Congressional Black Caucus as well on what we do about these particular issues. And so people definitely have the information. They're trying to get it in. And, you know, I also think this is why during pandemics, people are hopefully seeing that who we elect, not just federally, but statewide and locally really, really matter. I mean, those states I mentioned earlier, uh, Ohio, of course, Maryland, California, Washington, Michigan. I mean, these are Republican and Democratic governors where they are doing what's right by people. And so we want to put people in office who are thinking about people as a whole, not just thinking about one segment of the population and leaving other people out. That's not what people are elected for. People are elected to actually think about everyone. And like what's happening in Georgia or even Florida, where they're about to reopen. I mean, this is going to be disastrous. And unfortunately, it's going to be most disastrous for the most marginalized and oppressed among us. And oftentimes these are black Americans. So do you have hope? This question just came in to, do you think the coronavirus will be a catalyst to dismantle some of these inequities or are we just going to see similar policies, similar hierarchies hold fast or even strengthen? A really good question. So (laughs) it's twofold for me. So obviously what I do for a living, um, as a researcher, professor, a person who does work on social policy, suggests that, yeah, I have to be cautiously optimistic. And, and I do know that people are listening. I mean, I sit in these rooms, I, I present, I testify, people are listening. Um, on the other hand, though, history tells us, and we just went through that history, that the history of what happened after slavery, happened after the Great Depression, suggests that we won't learn from this. And, and I think there is also a health history here that's important that people might not know. So H1N1 hit in 2009. Let's go recent history. Mm-hmm. H1N1 hits, of course, we were in the middle of, a, of the, the Great Recession, as we called it. And, you know, a, a lot of money was put into that. The CARES Act collectively has actually been larger than that now. Um, but that money was put in place. And all of a sudden, under the Obama administration, we've seen unemployment go down and it continued to go down under the Trump administration. In 2009, when H1N1 hit, uh, the United States was not prepared. And part of what that meant was there were a lot of people who thought they had the flu, similar to COVID-19 at first, who actually had H1N1. They died. Well, the president, uh, President Obama administration put in place a pandemic response unit, a task force that responded straight to the, the National Security Council in the White House directly to the president. When Ebola hit in 2014, and Ebola has been around since the 70s, like it's continuously came back up, different, different strains similar to coronavirus. And then at that point in 2014, only 10 people who had Ebola got into the United States. Only 10 people. When Trump got elected, he not only disbanded um, a lot of things that Obama was trying to put in place for equity, but he disbanded that unit. And I think that decision is one of the main reasons why we are where we are today. So I would like to hope that whoever the next president is, that he or she is able to put in, um, and not just in the short term, but longer term, whoever the presidents are, are able to keep that pandemic response team close to them so that we can properly address what's happening, not just in the United States, but to help help other countries around the world deal with their virus outbreaks. Okay. Pandemic response is one thing, but what about the bigger question of whether or not this is a real opportunity to address these deeper inequities that are at the heart of American society and American history? You know, I think the opportunity is always there to do what's right. And that's one of the reasons why we put out the reparations piece was to say that, look, everyone is seeing what's happening. You know, it's very emblematic to me of what happened in the 60s when all of a sudden people started recording, not just separate and unequal schools that Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston were going around to get Brown versus Board of Education passed in 1954, but also the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 1964 and 1965, that it was when uh, countries around the world, particularly in Europe, started seeing Black people being sprayed down with water hoses. And they were like, Y'all are still treating black people like that. And so interesting where I think this moment is like that, where people not just in the United States, but around the world are like, wow, black people are still dying like this relative to other groups. And of course, people like to try to blame it on something innate or something biological or genetic. Look, we are basically all the same underneath the skin. Unfortunately, our skin leads to us being treated differently. And that's the bottom line. And then that has 
ramifications for our health. So I do think that with reparations, there are a lot of things that we can do to correct our racial wrongs. Congressman Akeem Jeffries from New York, I uh, had the chance to interview him at Brookings. And when we talked about this, he said that the United States has a genetic birth defect as it relates to the question of race. And I like that framing because we have to realize that racism is built into the DNA structure of the United States. And oftentimes it comes out as rotten tree, I mean, rotten apples. But we actually have to recognize that the tree is actually rotten and we have to do something about it. We can't just replant the tree. We actually have to go underneath and dig it up and replant something that's equitable for everyone. And I think we can do that. And I actually think we can do that. I actually think it's going to start at a uh, couple of specific places. Let me uh, close this point with this. I think universities are key. So we already know Georgetown and Princeton, for example, have done it. They have enacted reparations policies that students have voted on to say that we need reparations for descendants of uh, Black American slaves who helped to build our universities. In Georgetown, for example, over 200 uh, Black enslaved people were sold, and that's how Georgetown got, got its endowment to be Georgetown University we know to exist today. Princeton has a similar history. So I think we can look at universities. There are starting to be tons of reports coming out on this. Second, we can look at the state level. If we take Maryland, we pretty much know how many blacks were enslaved in the state of Maryland. So, the, so we can do that for other states as well. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, New York. I mean, look, the East Coast wasn't immune to these sort of things. New York had one of the biggest docking stations in the United States as it relates to slavery. So state becomes a way. What that starts to do, and then of course we can target specific companies that we know have a legacy of enslavement and have built their capital off of that. That establishes a president that all of a sudden can, can be taken to, say, the Supreme Court or the federal level to enact something more broadly. I, I, I hope that in reparations seems uh, extraordinarily, it, it's obviously extraordinarily important. It also seems, given the history of our nation and the politics of our nation, um, a, a long road before we get there. I hope that there is something in between, something closer that can be, uh, can in terms of steps we can immediately take now and as we come out of this pandemic to address some of these inequities that this pandemic is laying bare that have always been there that, you know, um, but it's, uh, so, and you've talked about some of these with universal basic income and hazard pay and all of that. And certainly that would go a long way. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. I mean, are there any other glimmers of hope or causes for optimism? that you have as we uh, as as we close this out? Yeah, I think there are some glimmers of hope. So of course, as we talk about a universal basic income, universal health care becomes critical. And I, I think that I've, I've addressed that. I think there are a couple of glimmers of hope. First, what one of the main themes we talked about over the past hour is that we're seeing a lot of bipartisanship where governors on the line, like uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, and Governor Larry Hogan run the, the Governor's Association. And mm -hmm. as a Republican and a Democrat, we're seeing a lot of people work together for people. And Marco Rubio had a Senator Marco Rubio had an op-ed this morning calling for basically economic justice. I mean, without a doubt. And, and, and that I was going to say, that's the second point. One of the big things that we've seen, um, not only about pushing for guaranteed income and thinking about bipartisanship, but we've also seen people come out to do miraculous things. You know, like when I see my wife go to work every day, I always think, I'm like, wow, she's like a superhero. Like she's going out, dealing with this stuff, having people come in with who knows what, and she's taking it head on. She doesn't flinch. She goes and does her job because this is what she's been trained to do, and she does it amazingly well. Like she's literally one of the best. She's way better at her job than I am at mine, and I love that. And I think a lot of healthcare providers fit that bill. So we're seeing these superheroes, and accordingly, we are seeing people reward them for that, applaud them, bring them food. People who, who have more resources are giving money. Like one big thing people could do, send some money to your barber or your beautician, because right now they're mostly out of work. Send them some money. You know, send money to organizations that you know are doing these sort of things. We're seeing teachers whose kids, um, students in their class don't have access to technology or aren't understanding something. They are taking whiteboards, sitting outside of people's classes, like Jamie Hines, who's one of the teachers at my kid's school, who went around to every single kid in her class and talked to them about what they uh, couldn't get in class. Of course, through screen doors and all that kind of stuff, practicing the social distancing. But we are seeing superheroes come out everywhere. So we have hope. 
And part of thinking about the bipartisanship is that for 2020, and I, even though I do think COVID-19 is not only going to impact people voting at the polls, but I also think it's going to have a deleterious impact on the black voting block, which is something we didn't even get to. But even with that, I think we're going to see hopefully a surge in people coming out to vote to put people in power who put people ahead of profits. And I think whether or not people are Republican or Democrat, we are seeing politicians do that. Dr. Rayshon Ray, thank you so much for being with us today. It's thank you for having time. me. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Indeed it has. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Dr. Rayshon Ray is the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He also teaches at the University of Maryland. Our forum today is part of our Health Equity Series sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland. We appreciate their ongoing support of our programming. City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and PNC, with additional support from Bank of America and Thompson Hine, and many, many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, stay close in your hearts if you can't stay close in person. We'll see you soon. Our forum is adjourned.